Okay, I have uh, one announcement before we begin this evening. Uh, there will be a an event for um, uh, a back to school bash for the teens of uh, Grace Bible Church, West Houston Bible Church, Pine Valley Bible Church, and Country Bible Church. Uh, and a lot of these kids went to the went to camp, and so they'll have uh, some things in common. And that's going to be at five thirty to 8.30 p.m. at Grace Bible Church. And you're supposed to bring your Bible. You left something out, Jeff. Two, 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 ten push-ups right here. No. Uh, notebook and pen. Tonight's chapter says there is none good, not even one. You are. $5 for chow. So RSVP to Jeff Phipps by August the uh, 20th. And he says, bring a friend. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Give you the opportunity to make sure you are in fellowship and ready to study the word. And uh, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we have you to come to, that you are our fortress, you are our strength, you are uh, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Father, we have access to your throne of grace because the Lord Jesus Christ tore down the dividing wall. He tore down the veil that separated us from you, and he opened up that entryway so that we have access to your throne of grace and that we can come boldly before your your throne of grace, and bring our petitions before you. And Father, uh, tonight we've had some uh, unfortunate news today in that, uh, at least for the family that we know that Earl uh, Norris suddenly came was promoted, and for that we rejoice because of his victory in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also know that this is a time of uh, sorrow and sadness for those who uh, love him and enjoy him and spend time with him. And, Father, we just pray for the family. We know that they are secure in the word and that they uh, that they know the truth and they're comforted by the word. But nevertheless, we pray that you would uh, sustain them at this time. And we also continue to pray for Jim and Linda Speedy and for Jim's uh, recovery, if that's your will. And we pray that you would just give the doctors wisdom and skill and that he would respond to the treatments that are given to him. But we know that his days and hours, as for all of us, are in your hands and in that we take tremendous comfort. Father, we pray now that as we study your word this evening that you would uh, encourage us with your word and that we may come to understand your grace and all that you have given us in an even greater manner. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, in Romans chapter 2, as Paul comes to the end of this chapter, we see that he is reinforcing the principle that he has been teaching that man on his own, that no human being on his own is able to to do that which meets God's standard of righteousness. It's not because God has an unrealistic standard. Sometimes uh, people may say that. Well, how can God expect uh, creatures like us to live up to that kind of a standard? And it has to do with his very own character who he is he just cannot have any sort of relationship or fellowship partnership with that which doesn't meet his own standards of his own character he can only have uh, intimacy and fellowship with those who are equally righteous 
And in his grace, he has provided a way to meet that righteousness. But the problem you have with mankind is that ever since Genesis 3 with the fall of Adam, the point is that people just try to be uh, righteous on their own. When Adam sinned and he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Scripture says, and their eyes were opened and they perceived their nakedness. They perceived that they were... Uh, no longer uh, protected, that something had changed. And when God came to walk in the garden, they were aware of their uh, complete spiritual vulnerability as exhibited by their physical nakedness. And so they ran and hid and they sewed uh, clothes together of fig leaves, an attempt to solve their problem on their own uh, without realizing that there was no way they could solve the problem because it wasn't an external problem, it's an internal problem. And this is the problem with all works-based systems, is all religions seek to somehow provide a moral pathway to God that by doing certain things, observing certain rituals, upholding a high standard of ethical conduct, that somehow we are going to measure up to the standard uh, that God has provided. But the problem is that when we sin, it is a violation It's an infraction of God's righteous standard. And there's nothing that can be done to to compensate for that. As I pointed out several weeks ago in talking about the uh, Casey Anthony trial, uh, you don't want to look at somebody who has committed a murder and say, well, you know, there were a thousand other opportunities for you to commit a murder, and so God's going to weigh the thousand times that you said, no, I'm not going to kill anybody today with the one time that you did, and so uh, the one time you succumbed to the temptation and you committed murder, uh, balances out, is overcompensated for or is compensated for by uh, the thousand times that you didn't. I mean, that's just irrational. None of us, no thinking person would ever think that you go into a courtroom, your criminal violation is is balanced out by all of the times that you did not commit a crime. And yet that's how many people approach God. There is this sense, it's, it's a, almost a universal sense among human beings that there is a time of accountability in, in life, that there is a time of evaluation uh, before God. But yet we don't see anyone else evaluate us on the kind of basis that we claim to believe that God will evaluate us. Just think about the next time you get an evaluation at wherever it is that you're employed and you get called in for an evaluation. And if you have uh, made some mistakes and caused some problems, you you know as well as I do that those uh, failures are not going to be outweighed by the good things that you have done. Now, we all make mistakes here and there. We all understand that, but... Uh, the issue is nobody ever evaluates anybody on the basis of weighing the good versus the bad, but yet we have this arrogant assumption that somehow that's what God is going to do. And that's exactly what it is, because the core problem of every one of us is arrogance. Our just whole orientation is that we get to define uh, the way life is going to be and the way God is going to be. We set the standard. And what Paul shows in this chapter is that even the most moral person cannot live up to his standard. He violates it at times, which renders him, which renders him guilty. Now, when we came to the last part of chapter two, Paul is zeroing in on the Jewish claim to acceptability and approval by God. The Gentile claim he has already dealt with. The Jewish claim is on the basis of the fact that he is a possessor of the law, the covenant with God as signified by circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant according to uh, Genesis chapter 17, which we, which we studied. So in the last few weeks, I've gone through these passages related to uh, circumcision. And I just want to remind you of a couple of points before we move on. That as Paul introduces this in verse 25, he said, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, 
But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become literally a foreskin. It's just as if you'd never circumcised. So the point is, is not circumcision or no circumcision, the, which is a physical act. The point is keeping the law or breaking the law. And he's already demonstrated and demonstrates again in this section that no one can keep the law 100%. But then what he's going to do as he develops his, his thought from verse 25 down to verse 29, he's going to show that real circumcision, the circumcision that matters, isn't a circumcision that is external. It isn't the ritual circumcision of the Mosaic law. It is the internal circumcision, a spiritual removal of of the flesh, i.e., the sin, that is the sin nature, and this is not something that ca- that Paul came up with. This is embedded in the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. We looked at these passages in Leviticus twenty six forty one. In the uh, Torah, we read that God says, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled. See, he's not talking about the physical circumcision, but the inner circumcision. And as we studied, an uncircumcised heart is an arrogant heart, an arrogant mentality. And that is the mentality of saying that I define the terms upon which God will accept me. That's arrogance. Humility says God is the one who sets the standard. Just think about, again, let's use an an example from employment. When you go into the person for whom you work, the standard by which you are evaluated is his standard, the standard of the employer. If if you're in the military and you have your officer evaluation report and you go before your commanding officer, you're evaluated according to a standard that is set by the uh, powers that be in the military. You're not evaluated by standards you generate or you create. So it's the difference between arrogance and humility, part of the Torah. Again, in Deuteronomy uh, 10.16, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. We see that it's not physical, it's the spiritual circumcision that is significant. Be stiff-necked no longer. Stiff-necked was an idiom, a Hebrew idiom for being arrogant and uh, self-absorbed and being rigid, committed to and stubbornly committed to your own arrogance. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord promises a time when in the future he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Now, Paul in the New Testament, emphasizes this fact. He's developing what is already in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he is explaining what it means to have a circumcised heart or to have humility as opposed to the arrogance of setting your own center, thinking that somehow we can do that which pleases God. And the place where he does this is in Philippians chapter 3. So I want you to just hold your place here in Romans chapter 2 and turn over to Philippians. Yeah, first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians, just before you get to Colossians. And Philippians chapter three is truly one of the great chapters of the Bible. I think it's somehow in the plan of God that many of the great chapters of the Bible happen to be the third chapter of the various books. John three, Romans three, Philippians three. These are some of the great chapters in Scripture. And here, Paul begins uh, giving them a warning in verse 2. He says, beware of dogs. Now, what he's using is a, a pejorative, an insult, a politically incorrect term, which shows that being politically incorrect isn't a sin. It's just violating the standards of man rather than the standards of God. And he is referring to a set group of people. Now, we call this set group of people, these who opposed Paul, as Judaizers. They were Jews who uh, had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but they had added something. 
and that was that there also had to be the observance of the Mosaic law. So it wasn't a faith alone in Christ alone. It was faith in Christ plus observance of the law. And everywhere that Paul went on his journeys, it seems that he was plagued by these Judaizers who would come along and stir up a lot of dissension and trouble uh, behind him. And in verse 2, he calls them dogs, which was a, a real insult. We, we don't think of calling somebody a dog. Well, in some cases, we call them a, a, a certain a female dog is an insult, but... Um, you know, we use other kind expressions about a dog, like they're sleeping like a dog or something like that. But but a dog in the ancient world was a scavenger. They, they were the garbage collectors of the ancient world, and they ran through the city streets at night, and they uh, cleaned up any food garbage or anything like that that was around. And, and they weren't necessarily the sweet domesticated uh, pet that sits on somebody's lap while they're sitting in front of the fire. And so this is a, an insult, and they're called dogs because they're just scavengers living off of someone else. He says, beware of evil workers. They're evil workers because of what they teach, because of their doctrine. And then he says, beware of the mutilation. Now, what he means by the mutilation is a harsh way of referring to those who are demanding that for someone to be truly saved, they have to also submit to physical circumcision. This, of course, was determined by the apostles at the Jerusalem Council to not be a requirement, that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and nothing else. There's no other works. It's not faith in Christ plus observance of the Sabbath, not faith in Christ plus uh, circumcision, not faith in Christ plus baptism, not faith in Christ in attendance at church. Uh, it is simply faith in Jesus Christ alone that is the issue. And then he goes on to say, for we are of the circumcision in verse, um, verse 3. And the we here refers not just to Paul and his entourage, but also to the Philippian believers to whom he is speaking. And he's saying, we are of the circumcision, and he's not going to be talking about the physical circumcision, but he's taking that concept that we saw in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that this is spiritual circumcision or circumcision of the heart. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And by the phrase, no confidence in the flesh, he's clearly referring to no confidence in both observance of the moral law in the Torah or the ritual of the law. Now, the reason I say those two things, and I've pointed this out before, and we'll get into it a little more as we go through Romans, is that there's a new school of Pauline interpretation that has reared its nasty, ugly little head in the last 20 years called the New Perspectives on Paul. And this is headed up. One of the key figures in this group is a man by the name of N.T. Wright, uh, Tom Wright, who is now uh, teaching in a, one of the universities in Edinburgh. He's a former bishop in the Anglican Church, and now he's teaching in the theological faculty. He's a brilliant man. This is one of the things that makes it difficult to refute him is because he has uh, mastered a host of disciplines related to biblical study. He has a skill in Greek and Hebrew that is uh, uh, surpassed by very, very few. He has mastered patristic literature, he, uh, which is the literature of the early church fathers. He has virtually a photographic memory so that in any kind of debate or any kind of format, he can just recall facts and minutia related to grammar and exegetical points that would drive most people back to all of their uh, resource books to check out. And he is able to just 
machine gun this material at people, both in terms of his verbal skills as well as his written skills. The man has written in, in the last uh, 15 years, he's probably written 15 tones uh, that are extremely technical and detailed and uh, require incredible uh, analysis just to look at all the tiny details of exegesis and track it all down, you have to control a tremendous amount of data. So most people don't. So they either get overwhelmed by his uh, uh, balderdash or they get, um, uh, they just say, okay, basically he's wrong. I'm not going to get into the details. He's wrong. Uh, and he is. And, but in this new perspectives of Paul, what they try to do is say that when Paul is arguing against the law, that we are not justified by the works of the law, he is really talking about only the ritual aspects of the law, not the moral aspects of the law. And so he concludes that, yes, there are some who may be saved because they have followed the moral law. And because they have followed the moral law, they will be saved. Again, it's a works-oriented salvation. So he has two ways of being saved, justified by faith alone in Christ alone or by observing the moral teachings of, of the law. The problem is that Paul does ne never does distinguish between the moral and the ritual. In this verse, though, of course, he is looking at a ritual, the ritual of circumcision. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. That term flesh covers everything, both ritual and moral. Then he goes on to say that this was exactly what he had once emphasized in his own life. He says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. Paul's basic point is if anybody has the right to think they can get into heaven on the basis of their morality, on the basis of their observance of all of the law, both the ritual and the moral law, it would be me. He said, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. And then he begins to list his, his spiritual resume according to the value system of the Pharisees. First of all, he excuse me, first of all, he circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. So he, from the very beginning, his parents followed the uh, teachings of the Torah. The male child would be circumcised on the eighth day, no matter what day that falls on. This is one of the exceptions. If it's a Sabbath, even if it's a Yom Kippur, if that's the eighth day, then that is when uh, the bris should take place. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that there's no question of his uh, ethnicity and of his genealogy. And then he says concerning the law, that is concerning the, the interpretation of the law, a Pharisee, he belonged to the Pharisee, Pharisee party, not to the uh, party of the Sadducees. And then verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. It's those Christians that were identified as the enemy, and I had more zeal, more passion, more desire to eradicate the Christians from the face of the earth than anybody. In fact, I uh, was responsible for the executions of a number of them. So he says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law. Now look at that. Some of you didn't think there was any righteousness in the law. But he says there is a righteousness in the law. It's not the absolute righteousness of God. It is a human righteousness, a relative righteousness. And he says according to that lower standard of righteousness, he was blameless. So this was Paul's uh, claim here. He's circumcised. He, he, he checked off every, every box. And then in verse 7, which I don't have a slide for, in verse 7 he says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. In other words, everything that was a value of my priority system under, under uh, the work system of the Pharisees is just loss for Christ. It has no value whatsoever. And he goes on to say in verse 8, Yet indeed I also count all things loss 
for the excellence, the superiority of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as, New King James says, rubbish. The uh, Greeks uses the term skubala, and skubala refers to the manure in the barn that is uh, scooped out and then taken out to the fields to use for fertilizer. So skubala is dung, manure. So he counts all of his achievements to be dung. No, it's the same attitude that Isaiah has in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags, that our best has no value before God. So having looked at that, let's go back and wrap up what Paul is saying in, in Romans 2.26. He says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, so there's that word righteousness again, dikaios. And I want you to note how many times we're going to run into this word righteous. Why? Because the theme of Romans is how does God demonstrate his righteousness in relation to the human race and demonstrating that God is indeed righteous in all of his dealings with the human race and that his requirement of every human being is to measure up to his righteousness. And God is so gracious that what he does is provide the righteousness for us because we cannot do it on our own. It's an impossibility to meet that standard. So Paul says, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, he asks this rhetorical question, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Remember what he said in verse 25? In verse 25, he says, circumcision is profitable if you keep the law. But if you don't keep the law, your circumcision is like uncircumcision. Therefore, isn't an uncircumcised man who keeps the righteous requirements of the law, superior to a circumcised man who doesn't keep the requirements of the law. So that the person who really demonstrates circumcision isn't the one who is physically circumcised, but the one who is truly obedient to the law because that demonstrates humility rather than arrogance. And that is the essence of the uh, circumcised heart. In verse 27, he says, and we'll ask another question. He's loaded with questions all the way through the end of this chapter and down through the first uh, six verses or seven verses of the next chapter, or excuse me, goes all the way down to the eighth, eighth verse of the next chapter. He asks one qu- rhetorical question after another, and the purpose is to get his audience to think about what he is saying. So he goes on in verse 27 to say, and will not the physically uncircumcised If he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code, that's the written uh, law of Moses, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. So if somebody, he's thinking hypothetically here, if somebody who isn't circumcised keeps the law 100%, aren't they superior and don't they have the right because they've kept the law 100%? Don't they have the right to judge you who, even though you're circumcised, fail to keep the law? And, of course, the answer would be yes, emphasizing that that it is the keeping of the law, it is the righteousness in character, not the uh, overt act of circumcision that is of significance. So he explains this in verse 28 by saying, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. What really makes you Jewish, he says, isn't that you've been circumcised physically. What makes you Jewish isn't your external genealogy, your external ritual. What makes you a Jew is what also takes place internally. There's a physical requirement in that you're not a Jew unless you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that only makes you a Jew outwardly, not inwardly. And so the true Jews of the Old Testament were the Jews like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, uh, Joshua, Gideon, 
Caleb, um, David, and all of the other believers in the Old Testament who trusted in God, who were humble before God. These were the uh, true, true Israelites because they had a external circum had an external circumcision as well as an internal one. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. See, Paul doesn't make this up. He got it from Moses in Leviticus, Moses in Deuteronomy. He got it from Isaiah. He got it from Jeremiah. All of these passages in the Old Testament talk about a circumcision of the heart. And so this is not something that Paul just makes up. He's applying it now in terms of uh, the understanding that physical externals do not do not change the internal realities. There has to be an internal change. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart by means of the Spirit. It's the same thing that we see in our other passages related to walking by the Spirit, um, being filled by means of the Spirit. It's N plus the dative. Uh, Circumcision is that of the heart by means of the Spirit, not by the letter, it's not by the external observance of the law. It is by means of an inner event that happens. You may trust in Christ. That's a non-meritorious act. A result of that trusting in Christ is that the Holy Spirit then uh, performs an act of regeneration, and that is the circum- related to the circumcision of the heart. And he says, uh, circumcision is that of the heart, by means of the Spirit, not by means of the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Now, the question is, if you were Jewish and you're listening to this, then a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee, might object and say, I've got some problems with what you just said. If, if what you just said is true, then what's so great about being Jewish? What's so great about being circumcised? Why do we even have this thing of circumcision? And this is where Paul goes in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he begins to raise a series of, of questions, a series of rhetorical questions to drive home the point of, um, of, his, of his message, that it is, salvation has to be of God completely, that man can't even contribute to it. And of these questions, he asks... Uh, what advantage then have the Jews? What's their advantage? Do they, are they in a better position? Second, he answers the question, what is the profit of circumcision? What value does circumcision have? Third, uh, he asks in verse, um, verse 3, but what if some of the Jews in the Old Testament did not believe? And then the implication he goes on to develop in the next question, would that unbelief make the faithfulness of God uh, void? In verse 5, he says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So again, he's, he's raised, using these rhetorical questions to get his audience to think through the issues. Come down. Then he asks... Um, in verse 6, for then how will God judge the world? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And so this takes us down through the questions he asked down through about verse verse 6. So let's start off by just going to the, that, looking at that first verse. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? And the issue here is, okay, if if circumcision doesn't really get you into heaven, if it doesn't solve the righteousness problem, then what does? What value is it? And this is a question that everybody has to ask at some point or answer at some point in terms of their own life. On what basis are you going to get into heaven? If God says, here's the standard righteousness, on what basis are you going to get into heaven? How are you going to solve the righteousness problem in your life? And Paul's answer is that it was 
circumcision was never designed to be the answer to the righteousness problem. He uses two different words here as he asks this question. He says, what advantage then has the Jew? And this is the Greek word parasos, which means uh, has a meaning of something more, something in addition, something beyond the norm, and is used to refer to something that is extraordinary or advantageous. And so we could uh, translate this, uh, what more then has the Jew? Or... What is there left for the Jew? If circumcision is nothing, then what's, what, what more does the Jew have? Nothing. Uh, what advantage does it bring? Nothing. So that, that is the thrust of his question. And then the second question he asks is, what is the profit of circumcision? And the word there is a word used many times in the New Testament, aphileia, which means uh, advantage, what advantage is it, what gain is it, what benefit is it, what help is it. Sometimes in uh, economic context it refers to to value. So what Paul is saying is in putting the, the question in the mouth of a, uh, of a Jewish objector, says, well, if, if what you're saying is true, then I guess there's no value to being Jewish and there's no value to, to circumcision. And Paul, say, Paul rejects that completely. Uh, the question being uh, framed, what is the profit of circumcision and what advantage has the Jew? Well, there's much advantage. They had a lot of advantages. It doesn't mean that they're justified or that those advantages solve the righteousness problem because they still have a problem with breaking the law. That's why they had the sacrifices. You have the... Um, you have the sin offerings and the trespass offerings and the, uh, all of the different series of offerings. That's why you have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is because there is a failure to, to follow the law. They, there's a lack of righteousness. But Paul says, what he's pointing out is circumcision and the law wasn't designed to give you righteousness, but it was designed to make you realize that we are all unrighteous. We don't measure up to the standard, and we can't do it. And so the first area of value that he mentions here in verse 2 is the Scripture, the writing of Scripture. He says, chiefly because to them, that is to the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. Now, literally, this is the words of God. It's the Greek word logos in the plural, the words of God. It was to the Jewish people that God entrusted his revelation. He revealed himself to mankind through through the prophets of Israel. They were the custodians of Scripture. They were the ones who were to write the scripture down to preserve the scripture and to protect it so that it would not the scriptures that they had would not be destroyed and so it was their responsibility to maintain the copies of the scripture which they did in a magnificent and incredible way this was one of the great benefits of the dead sea scrolls is that when they discovered uh these scrolls that had been written on uh, mostly papyrus, but other different kinds of materials, and have been stored in clay jars in the in the Judean desert alongside the Dead Sea uh, for uh, almost two thousand years or more. In some cases, because most of these were written between about uh, two hundred one fifty or so BC to approximately. 100 AD, some, some of them written at a time overlapping that of the first century, that when they discovered these documents, many of them were uh, portions of the Hebrew scriptures. What it demonstrated was that this, the scripture that they had in, the, in these Dead Sea Scrolls was virtually identical to what was being recorded uh, in the Hebrew scriptures today, what, what, what we had. And the oldest manuscript that we had uh, prior to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was dated about the 9th century, 900s, 10th century uh, A.D. And by comparing what we had with what we found at Qumran, 
we saw that there were very, very few changes. Before that, it was easy for those who didn't want to believe that the Bible was unique to come along and say, oh, well, there were all kinds of changes, that we, we lost things. There, was, uh, there, there were other things that were written, and, and it was said differently, and these things were modified down through the years. And yet you had this 2,000-year gap, and there was virtually no change. There were minor changes. There were spelling uh, updates. There were uh, some uh, words where, where the word order was transposed. There were a few places where a word was left out here or a word was added there, but nothing of any great significance. And in fact, it was demonstrated that what was found at Qumran was probably of a lesser quality than what we have today. Now, you would sit there and say, well, how in the world are they going to determine that? Well, they would determine that on the basis of a couple of different things, uh, one of which would have to do with the vowel points, that is, the little symbols that were put into the words to preserve the vowel readings uh, by the Masoretes. Uh, originally, Hebrew had no vowels whatsoever. And so as you looked at... Um, at a Hebrew manuscript, as it was written about uh, 200 B.C., there would be just the consonants, no vowels. Uh, later on, in order to give some idea of the vowels that should be there, some consonants like the, the Y, the Yod, or uh, the Yud, and the, uh, uh, and, and the Vav were used with a dot to indicate a vowel. And so those were added, and and uh, a couple of other little things were were added, so that at the very beginning of this age, first century, second century, third century, uh, you might have Hebrew manuscripts of the of the Pentateuch that had a different uh, different number of letters in it because they added these what they called matris lectionis, or the mother of letters. It was just these consonants that doubled as vowels. Then a little later on, as the Masoretes developed a more uh, consistent and detailed uh, pointing system for the vowels, they would add those. So the more recent a document is, the more vowels are in that document. And what I discovered, some of you were were uh, with us when we when uh, we were first starting the church, and right after uh, I moved down here from Connecticut. We uh, went. There was a Dead Sea Scroll exhibit down here at the Museum of Natural Science. We went down there, and there was a man. I think his name was Lawrence Schiffman, who was a teaches Hebrew, Aramaic studies, and Dead Sea Scrolls up at NYU. And he'd been brought in by the uh, Young Israel Synagogue here in Houston uh, to take them, give them a tour of these Qumran documents. And uh, he and I began to visit some as we walked through the exhibit. Uh, he knew Randy Price, had, was familiar with him and uh, Randy's work, and so we had some common ground there. And he told me that that actually the 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 Pentateuch that's in the Masoretic text is of an older origin than the Pentateuch that was at Qumran, because the Pentateuch that was at Qumran had more vowels in it than the than the um, uh, Masoretic text that we have, and that's just fascinating. And there were very, very few changes. And then uh, another example of this occurred with a man who was a very liberal theologian, head of the uh, Divinity School at Yale, not known for their conservative theology, uh, by the name of Miller Burroughs. And uh, he was one of the key people, key translators in the Revised Standard Version. And he was one of the key uh, people, he was one of the first uh, scholars to produce an extremely thick book on the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls that came out in the uh, in the fifties, and he he believed there were only about fifteen or so significant differences between Isaiah in the Masoretic text and Isaiah document at Qumran, and he chose to to go with the Qumran document on on ten of those changes, and those were present in the Revised Standard Version uh, translation. But after another 20 years of studying the Qumran documents and studying Isaiah, he came to the conclusion that he made a terrible mistake and he didn't accept any of them. And so that just again and again, scholars have confirmed that the text that was preserved uh, by the uh, by the Masoretes 
was a superior text to the Qumran, but but very few differences. So it gave us great confidence in knowing that the the Hebrew scriptures did not change over time. Now, since I brought it up, we're going to take a little side trip. I just happened to turn something on the other day, driving around, and I flipped on uh, some radio talk show. I don't even know what uh, what it was about. But, oh, I know what it was. It was Glenn Beck. And he was talking about the prophecies in the, um, in the Bible code. And I don't know if you've heard of the Bible code. The Bible code, this idea came out in, in a book that was published uh, by some, I think, so, a, a couple of Old Testament scholars back in the, back in the, the um, mid-'90s. And the Bible code ha- came up with the idea that now that we have a have computers to take all of the text of the Hebrew scriptures and run it together, I'm going to go from my left to right because that's how Hebrew would be read, uh, and you would take all of this and run all these words together from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Malachi or in the in the Hebrew scriptures, it would be to the end of Second Chronicles, and you run all of the text together, and then you start running mathematical formula through here in what's called a number skip code, and that's like if you take every every third letter, every fourth letter, every fifth letter, and that when you run certain skip codes you discover certain messages. You can find the name of Saddam Hussein and George Bush and uh, Barack Hussein Obama. And, you know, you can just find everybody in there. And uh, even the claim was that, that you could even find Glenn Beck's name in there and all these other claims that are there. There's only one problem with this. And you have to ask the question, what text are you using? You're using the Leningrad text, which is the standard accepted one, but there's about four or five other variations of the Hebrew text. Which text are you going to use? Are you going to use a text with no vowel points? Are you going to use a text with just the matrix lectionis vowel points? Which text are you going to use? If you take out one letter every other page, you're going to get a different set of consonants. And this is, I didn't originate this critique. This was uh, a simple critique that I could get my little mind around that was published in the Biblical Archaeology Review back around 1997 or 1998. And nothing has been said since then to, to be able to refute that basic criticism. There is no single uh, universally accepted text of the Hebrew Old Testament, just like there's no universally accepted text of the Greek New Testament because there are spelling differences. There's a few places there were. It's not that the text means something different. It's that you have some debated areas where the word order shifts or a word's left out or a word's included or the spelling's a little bit different, something like that. So, uh, you know, here was dear old Glenn Beck just going on and on and on about how uh, the, the guys who had written this book, and they've come out with a Bible Code 2 book, that these guys had run a uh, number uh, skip sequence uh, through, through the Old Testament text, and they'd come up with these various prophecies about Glenn Beck. So for what that's worth, we know there's a problem. So what Paul is saying in verse 2 is that the value for the Jew is that he had information about God given to him that the Gentiles did not have. We saw this on Sunday morning a few weeks ago in our study of Ephesians 2 and reconciliation. You have passages from the Torah, from the Pentateuch, from the uh, books of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, Moses says, Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments, that's the Torah, that's the law, statutes and judgments, as righteous, there's that word again, that as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today. In Psalm 147, verses 19 to 20, there's a historical reflection. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. Jacob and Israel there are terms that refer to the people of Israel, not to 
uh, Jacob as the individual, but as a name reflecting the his descendants. He shows his word to Jacob, his statutes, his judgments to Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. You see, God has showed his word. He has revealed himself to the world through the Jewish people. This is affirmed again in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, uh, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received uh, living oracles to pass on to you. I took the New American Standard translation here. The New King James or King James says that he received lively oracles to pass on. I thought that the English language has changed a little bit, and lively oracles sort of gave a vision of tablets dancing across the stage or something. So living oracles is more accurate in relation to the uh, original text. And Paul affirms this again in Romans 9, verses 3 and 4. He says... um, He says, I could wish that I myself was a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, and the covenant. See, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the land covenant, the new covenant are all eternal, irrevocable covenants that God made with the Jewish people, and they never, ever, ever will be broken. And one day they will be fulfilled to the letter. And they are still theirs. That's the value of being Jewish, is that God gave them privileges and blessing in terms of the knowledge of him and his working in and through them. Now, in verse 3, back to Romans 3, 3, just to bring you up to date, what, what Paul's been saying is he's using these rhetorical questions. The first couple of questions What advantage is it to being Jewish? What's the profit of circumcision? And he says it's this. They were the custodians of the Scripture. God spoke to them directly and spoke to the human race. And then the next objection that he raises that he puts in the mouth of an objector, uh, as it were, he says, "For okay, so that's great. So we have some that you have this revelation. Great that God blessed us with this. But what if some didn't believe? What if, and that's really not a good translation of believe. It's the Greek verb apistevo, using the modern Greek translation, apistevo. The alpha at the beginning is a negative, and it's the same word that's used in verse 3 and again in verse 4. Now, the point is not belief versus unbelief, but it has to do with being entrusted with something or faithful with a task. And so it should really be best translated for what if some were not faithful? Will their unfaithfulness, see they're not faithful in obeying the word, will their unfaithfulness make the faithfulness of God? See, if if you're compa- comparing and contrasting two things, you have to compare and contrast uh, apples to apples and oranges to oranges, so you, you, you can't compare belief and faithfulness. They either have to be both belief and unbelief, and the belief of God, the faith of God, but the faith of God is doesn't make sense in this context. We're not talking about God's faith. We're talking about his faithfulness towards Israel. So if the comparison is with faithfulness, then the word pistis, that is translated belief, and apisteo, or pisteo and apisteo, that are translated belief and unbelief, they should be translated faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And so Paul is asking, for what, what if some of these Israelites were unfaithful? that is, in the task of preserving the oracles of God. Would their unfaithfulness make the faithfulness of God without effect or abolish it? That's the second word there, katargeo, meaning to abolish or nullify it. Would, ma- In other words, would man's failures nullify God's faithfulness and his righteousness? And, and, 
And Paul says, certainly not. He uses a very strong term there, which he uses many times in Romans as he sets up these uh, rhetorical arguments. He says, meganoita, may it never be. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. And so the focal point is that God is true. God is the one who is uh, perfectly righteous, and he is the one who is going to maintain that righteousness over against man who is not. So he introduces the concept of truth here, aletheis, which is parallel to what? Being faithful. And what's that parallel to? Being righteous. So he's drawing, as it were, he, 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 he connect the dots. He's connecting tr- the truthfulness of God to the faithfulness of God to his righteousness. That is one way of thinking about God's integrity. He is true. He is faithful to himself and to his word, and he is righteous. So Paul uses these three words um, to describe the faithfulness and the righteousness, the integrity of God uh, towards Israel. He says, certainly not indeed let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you were judged. Now, if you take this verse and you compare it to Psalm 51 verse 4 in your New American Standard, New King James Version, King James Version, or whatever you're using, you will note that there are some differences. And that is because the Bible that the apostles carried and had with them that they used in the Greek culture was the Septuagint. It wasn't a Masoretic text. They were using the Septuagint. And so the differences are that in Psalm 51, verse 4, in the Septuagint, it's worded a little differently than it is in the Hebrew text. And that brings up a whole other side issue on um, textual criticism. But the point, some people say, well, it's not right. It's not what the Masoretic text said. I said that doesn't, it may not be accurate in translating the Masoretic text or the, or the Hebrew text, but it's still true. And because God the Holy Spirit in the process of inspiration uh, had the Apostle Paul and the others quote from the Septuagint, then what they quote from the Septuagint, which may not be an accurate translation of the original Hebrew, is it becomes inspired and in the Word of God at that point because what, it, what the Septuagint translated was may not have accurately reflected the original Hebrew, but it was still true. It was still without error. So it reads, the last part of it reads, um, this is from uh, David's confession in Psalm 51, where he says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mayest be justified when thou speakest and be clear. That was the... um, that's the uh, Old Testament translation, and it's tra- and the, the Greek text, the Septuagint text, use the word nikao, where we get our word from Nike, victory, the goddess victory, Nike, you wear Nike shoes, and that's the goddess of victory. So it really has the idea of not being clear or not being, um, I think, overcoming, although it's translated that way several times uh, in, in John and in Revelation, the idea is really being vindicated or being victorious. So what Paul quotes is the last part of Psalm 51.4, that you may be justified when you speak and be vindicated when you judge. In other words, this is a vindication of God's justice as it upholds his righteous character. So we'll stop there, come back next time when we get into verse 5, continue uh, these uh, rhetorical questions. The bottom line that Paul is driving to is that when he comes to the end, he says all of these arguments are basically trying to say that um, the, using it, some sort of end justifies the means rationale to get around the righteous standard of God. And so he, conclu- he will conclude... Um, Uh, starting in verse 10, that 
It's not based on human works at all because all have sinned. There's none righteous, there's not one, there's none who understands, and there's none who seeks after God. And when we get into that next time, uh, we'll get into some really interesting uh, usage of the Old Testament in the New, and it really upholds an extremely important doctrine. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this evening and to study your word, to be reminded of... Your grace, which has supplied everything we cannot supply, that it is your grace who has given, that has given us a perfect righteousness, and that all that you ask is that we depend upon you, that we trust you, and that we don't try to trust you with our fingers crossed and trying to rely on something else and, and uh, thinking that, well, we'll trust you and do something. It's either trusting you exclusively or not trusting you at all. Father, we pray that as we think about these things, we might come to a better understanding of your integrity, your righteousness, and your grace, because your grace is the environment in which we live, and in which we breathe, and in which we operate. And it is through your, right, your, your grace that we are enabled and strengthened in every area of our spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.